So, yesterday I was talking about the issue of what is normal and began to explore the diversity of humanness is uh, that which is normal. And that which is normal, or who is normal, is Jesus. So today I want to take a slightly different tack that connects with that, but takes us in a slightly different direction. I want us to think about uh, the issue of time. Uh, but before I get into time, I want to just give you an illustration. Some of you will be familiar with an experiment that was done in Princeton uh, in the 70s, looking at uh, the uh, responses of students to particular forms of stress. And so the, the, um, the experiment went like this. At one side of the campus, the students, seminary students, were uh, given instructions to talk on either vocation or on the Good Samaritan at the chapel or a building at the other side of the campus. And so they were sent across the campus to do this. And the researchers uh, placed a, a man who was clearly intended to be look as if he's in distress in an, arch, an archway which the students had to pass through. And so they were told, the students were, some of the students were told to uh, hurry. So they had high hurry rate because they wanted to get there, didn't want to be late. Other students were told to have a low hurry rate, saying you've plenty of time. Now the students who had a high hurry rate went across the campus, looked at this gentleman who was clearly in distress, ignored them, and went off to uh, do the lecture. Uh, those with a low hurry rate had attended to, to stop. There was something quite ironic about rushing past an injured person to go and preach about the Good Samaritan. Um, so, but the point is, this, this experiment shows that if you're moving quickly, then you become less compassionate than if you're moving slowly. And only Nguyen, in his book on hospitality, he talks about the significance of busyness. And busyness kills compassion. Being busy has become a status symbol, and most people keep encouraging each other to keep their body and mind in constant motion. From a distance it appears that we try to keep each other filled with words and actions without tolerance for a moment of silence. Hosts often feel that they have to talk all the time to their guests and entertain them with uh, things to do, places to see and people to visit. But by filling up every empty corner and occupying every empty time, their hospitality becomes more oppressive than revealing. So the faster you move, the less compassionate you become. The more that you're uncomfortable with time and space and slowness, the more you try to fill it with uh, busyness. And you can see it, you know, if you ask somebody who's recently retired, um, are you enjoying your retirement? The chances are they'll say, yeah, I'm busier than ever. <laughs> and I think, well, why would you want to be busier than ever if you're retiring? And the reason that is because busyness is a, social, is, a, is a source of social value. And so I said to one of my colleagues not so long ago, he said to me, um, what are you doing today? And I said, eh, nothing. And you can see in his face that I had deeply offended as some kind of social <laughs> norm within his life. Like, I wasn't really doing nothing. But there's something nice about doing nothing that, uh, uh, that kind of our culture says it's not a particularly good thing to do. So busyness kills compassion 
and challenges love. And busyness ends up in violence in the sense that the busier you are, the more stressed you become. The more stressed you become, the more sick you become. The more sick you become, the less you're able to enjoy life. The less you're able to enjoy life, the less the possibility of what Jesus says is giving life in all of its fullness becomes a, 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 a challenge in terms of becoming a reality in your life. So it's destructive. Now, I'd like you to think a little bit about time. So time is obviously all around us, but it has a profound power over us. St. Augustine says that he knows exactly what time is until somebody asks him to describe it, and then he can't quite work out what it is. And yet, this thing that we can't quite work out what it is, determines our lives. We're always chasing time, we buy time, we lose time, we use time. Everything that you do with your money in a capitalist society, you do with your time. So time becomes a commodity, and it's a commodity that rules over you. Most of the time you're looking at the time and begin to follow your schedule, and you follow your schedule, and your schedule, and time drives you to your destination. You get up in the morning, how many clocks have you seen today? You know, I get up in the morning, I see my iPad, my alarm clock, my watch, my phone, and that's before I even get out of my bed. And then you look at the clock in the kitchen, the clock, everywhere there's clock, time, or everything is everywhere there's clock. So time rules over you. But time is deeply oppressive because you can't find space, you can't find enough time. And you get to that kind of odd stage in life where you have to schedule in time to be with God. You know, your quiet time, schedule it. There's something odd and there's something wrong with the way that we think about time. And part of that wrongness and part of the problem is that we are ruled by clock time. A form of time that is linear, that moves on, that drives towards a particular destination, even though we're not quite sure what that destination is. We allow time to drive us in that direction. And so the clock itself becomes quite tyrannous, or, or tyrannical rather. It rules over us in ways that make us ill, that make us sick and make us less loving people. So there's something strange about time that we need to be thinking about. My anxieties have anxieties, as Charlie Brown would put it. And it's true. Anxiety and stress, because of the way that we time our lives, is profoundly rampant within our society. And for those of you who are, are uh, administratively minded, the whole idea of efficiency and punctuality and getting things done is necessary, but it's highly problematic. Now, um, in the Benedictine monks back in the 14th, 15th centuries, or whatever it would be, um, they used to have, uh, they had a completely different understanding of what time was. So time was given to them, monks, by God. And so every day they're... Uh, Life was scheduled, with, primarily through bells, to remind people, or remind monks, of who God was. And so you have a series of chimes over the day. Each of these chimes determines the type of prayer and the time to pray. So time, within that context, is always a gift from God that you give back to God. And the Benedictines actually invented the mechanical clock. But they invented it uh, without a second hand. Right? So it was a single-handed clock, which means that all you're doing is remembering certain rhythms, certain spiritual practices within the day. It's when the second hand of the clock 
was uh, invented that we began to get the idea of being punctual. Because then you have minutes and seconds. And when the clock kind of moves from its location within the spirituality of the monastery into the marketplace, it becomes something different. And the ticking of the second hand of the clock means that punctuality comes into existence. You think about it. Monks are not punctual. They don't kind of turn up because, oh, I didn't mean to be late. To be late is to indicate that you've actually misunderstood something profound about where you should be in relation to God. But punctuality comes into existence when the market takes over the clock, when we the second hand and seconds and minutes begin to come into existence. And so that kind of way of thinking about the clock, that kind of economics of time, shapes and forms the way that we think about time. And oftentimes shapes and forms the way we think about one another. It's good to get things done, but presumably we should be getting things done for the right reasons. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, recently my Aberdeen City Council asked me to, uh, to do a bit of research looking at uh, examining dementia services in the city. And I spent uh, you know, a few months just talking to people who are the service users, talking to uh, policy makers, etc., about what needs to be done in relation to dementia, dementia care. Um, and one of the things that I noticed was that the way in which care homes in Aberdeen City are uh, commissioned is according to quality of care. Right? So you have a certain set of criteria that have to be met to uh, ensure that people are cared for and cared for appropriately, cared for in a structured way, and so that their days are structured, they're well fed, well looked after, so on and so forth. Um, but within the commissioning process, there's absolutely no need to put on anything relating to quality of life. So you can care for people within the rhythm of the day, you can create really good structures and procedures and policies, but you don't actually have to care for that which is fundamental to who they are. So that tension between quality of care and quality of life is something that's ingrained in the system. And that's to do with time. That's to do with what you think your priorities are and what you think the priorities are when you're looking at somebody, when you're caring for somebody, when you're spending time developing their lives or not developing their lives in that way. So getting things done is good, but for what purpose? So St. Augustine is interesting on time. So in, in his um, Confessions in Book 11, uh, he talks about time. He's trying to work out a theological dilemma. And the dilemma is, how can God be timeless and unchangeable and at the same time be implicated in time? Because surely if uh, God is implicated in time, then uh, he changes. Because as time moves on, time changes and we change with time. And so for Augustine, it's a theological crisis. How can we work this out? And to cut a long story short, this is how he, he, he concludes with it. He says, when, uh, time comes, when God creates the world, time comes into existence. So time is a creature. Time is part of God's creation. When creation falls, time falls with it. So time has fallen. And you, you, know, you don't have to look far to see how fallen time is, the way the impact that it has on us. And so for Augustine, the task of the church, and for all of us really, is to redeem time and put it to its proper purposes. And Paul talks about that, that Jesus, the time when Jesus comes is a time when time is redeemed. So what we need to think about this morning, I think, is 
how can we participate in the redemption of time? And how can we take time and put it to its proper purposes? The purposes of love, ultimately. Kusiko Kiyama, who's a Japanese theologian, uh, wrote a, an essay uh, in the, back in the 60s called The Three Mile an Hour God. And this is how he, uh, this is how he ran with it, right? Uh, the average speed at which a human being walks is three miles per hour. So Jesus walks at three miles per hour. So Jesus, who is God, walks at three miles per hour. Jesus, who is God, who is love, walks at three miles per hour. So love, he says, has a speed. Love has its speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed to. It goes on in the depths of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It's the speed we walk and therefore the speed the love of God walks. Now, the challenge to all of us is, what speed do we walk at? You know, I, I talked to one of my colleagues recently, and he's, we were talking about this idea of the three miles an hour God. And he said, well, the institution I work in, which was a, a hospital, means that I have to walk at, at least nine miles an hour. And I said to him, well, that's understandable, but who's following who? So if Jesus is walking at three miles an hour and you're walking at nine miles an hour, where's the dynamic? Uh, having said that, I was uh, up at Calvin last week, and I, in the morning I was on this running machine, running very slowly. <laughs> and Eric Carter walked past, I don't, don't, some of you didn't know what Eric Carter did at Vanderbilt. He walked past and he, he knocked on the door and put his head down and says, what speed are you going? I said, I don't know, it's how many kilometers. He says, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> Which was harsh. <laughs> but it's true. The faster you go, the less able you are to love. The faster you go, the less able you are to see the details of people's lives, the details of people's experiences, spaces in life where love emerges in unusual ways. You know, I've spent a lot of time over my youth with people with advanced dementia. And sometimes, you know, you can be with a person who has advanced dementia, and you, for most of that time you're there, they're not really engaging with you. But suddenly, you lock into them. And suddenly you find that space where you connect. It's not the space of words, it's a space where you know the two of you together. Now, if you're moving quickly, you'll never find that. You'll get your tasks done, you'll get a very good quality of care, but if you're moving quickly, you miss the moment of love. So patience takes a long time, and taking time is the essence of the gospel. If Jesus is slow, if love is slow, then we have to think through what it means to be slow people. So, taking time to notice the things that the world considers to be Trivial. Stanley Hauerwas, uh, that's his expression. But there's a beauty in that. To take time to slow down, to notice the things that culture thinks are insignificant, that are trivial, that are not important. And when you do, you begin to see the world in a very, very different way. So redeeming time and taking time for the trivial. What may that begin to look like? It means becoming friends of time, which means becoming friends of Jesus, really. In God's time, those people whom the world refuses to spend time with become the very focus of God's attention. 
God is standing here, versus put it takes time for the trivial. And those who follow Jesus, God incarnate, are expected to do the same. There are no lesser lives in the kingdom of God. Spending time doing what the world assumes to be trivial is the essence of the, what John Vanier calls the way of the heart. That way of the heart is engaging with one another, uh, not simply intellectually, but through our hearts. The heart being that center point where we connect with God, that center point where we connect with one another. A place within us, a space within us, that's filled with the spirit of connectedness and the spirit of relationality. So becoming friends of time means uh, taking Jesus seriously and following the three mile an hour of God. No matter how bizarre that may sound, many things within the gospel sound odd. That doesn't make them untrue. So what if we were to stop developing disability ministries and name what we do, we being all of us together, differently? I want us to think about discipleship. And that discipleship is profoundly uh, a timeful thing. When we become a disciple, we step out of our clock time and into God's time. A time that's really unusual. If you look at time in, in the scripture, you know, when Paul talks about, you know, we were resurrected with Christ, it's, it's almost like time doesn't exist in a linear form. Sometimes we're back there, sometimes we're up here. So on the cross, <coughs> Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise tomorrow to, the, to the, 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 the thief. And yet Matthew 25, we're all resurrected in the last day. Time is all over the place. God's time is different. So stepping out of our own assumptions about linear clock time and stepping into God's time uh, is the essence of what discipleship is. Let's think about discipleship. One way in which we think about discipleship oftentimes is it's our walk with Jesus. Now, that's a classic example of disabling language. You can walk with Jesus if you have the ability to walk. But does that mean that you don't have the ability to walk? Then uh, uh, presumably you can't be a disciple. Oh, there's a question there. But following Jesus is not a matter of walking or moving in particular ways or understanding certain things. Following Jesus is loving Jesus. It's engaging with Jesus with the whole of who we are and enabling that engagement to help us to understand the resonance and the rhythms of love. So what have we called disability something different? I don't know if you've ever thought about the power that naming has. You know, in the Genesis account of creation, one of the things that God gives Adam responsibility for is to name the creatures. And so the rabbit or the toucan or whatever it is, the lion, the tiger, comes before Adam. He gives that creature its name, and that's what it becomes. And that indicates to us that a primal responsibility of human beings is to name things properly. A primal mark of sin is to misname things. And so naming is profoundly important because the way that we name something determines what we think we are seeing. What we think we are seeing determines how we respond to that thing that we think we are seeing. So names are not a by the way. So yesterday I talked to you about stigma, and I'll just remind you about that, because stigma fun functions that way. And stigma is something that's central to the experience of many disabilities, many, many mental health problems. The idea of stigma comes from the slave trade, whereby a slave would be bought by a, by a slave master, would be branded, and the minute that brand was put onto that slave, the person disappears. They're reduced to the size of that 
around. They no longer have a name. They no longer have a sense of personhood. Indeed, they're no longer human. And that's precisely what stigma does. That as soon as you give somebody a name, a diagnosis, or a way of talking about people, be that disability, be that schizophrenia, be that bipolar disorder, whatever it is, persons become subsumed to that. And they lose something fundamental very often. So that idea of naming is fundamentally important. So if you're going to think about uh, creating uh, disciples, discipleship, or disability ministry, these words are really, really important. So let's think about discipleship slightly differently. In John 15, 14, 16, Jesus says this, You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. What Jesus does there is he completely renames the, the disciples. He moves them from servants to friends. Friends of the God who creates the universe. Friends of the incarnate God who comes into the world to bring about redemption and calls people friends. So no longer are people servants. People are now friends. So to be a disciple is to be a friend of Jesus. To be a friend of Jesus is to function and to see the world in a quite particular way. This is how I'd like you to think about this. If it's correct that the essence of discipleship is friendship, then we have to think very clearly about what friendship is. So one of the things that is very obvious, I mean, I'll speak for myself rather than speaking for all of you, like, is that most of our friends are remarkably similar to ourselves. Right? So you have the same shared interests, you go to the same places, you, sometimes you have the same history. And the principle that we very often use in relation to friendship is, is like attracts like. So it's an Aristotelian principle. Aristotle had this idea that the only true friendship, this whole realm of different types of friendship, the only true friendship was between two like-minded males. So sadly, women couldn't become friends in, the, in Aristotle's thinking. Um, but thankfully, we've moved on from there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've never had a friend, so I'm really only talking theoretically about all this. <laughs> but one day, I'll show you all. <laughs> I'll make you my friends. I'll make you my friends. That's right. The, so you get this principle of like attracts like. And that's built into our culture. You give me this level of social goods, I'll give you this amount of social goods, and together we become friends. If you stop giving me the, the level of social goods that I want, then we won't be friends. And that's just the way that it works. Facebook's a classic example of that. It's like a, it's like a social media version of the way that culture <laughs> thinks about friendship. And that's why relationships break down, and that's why friendship becomes highly individualized and, and selfish within Western cultures, at least. When you look at the, 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 the friendships of Jesus, you see something different. So the principle of the incarnation is a God who is radically unlike human beings, enters into humanity, and becomes a human being, and offers friendship to human beings. It's a principle of grace, not a principle of likeness. It's not like attracts like, it's grace attracts everyone. 
And so when you look at the food, who does Jesus hang around with? He hangs around with tax collectors and sinners. Not reformed tax collectors and sinners, but tax collectors and sinners. People whom society pushes to the margins, that's a space where Jesus is. People who say, these people are not like me at all, that's a place where Jesus is. So friendship is discipleship. And discipleship means engaging with one another in a quite particular, radically countercultural way. Then our disability ministries is all about friendship. All about engaging in Christ-like friendships with people who are pushed to the margin very often and who are alienated, for whom the church itself uh, is a space where they can become destigmatized and, re and, and recognize, uh, as all of us together, that we are fully human in Jesus. And that means that the kind of friendship that you see in Jesus is full-bodied in that sense. So it's not like you have to know this or know that or know the next thing. It's something about being with Jesus that, has, that relates to everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in uh, his book Discipleship, makes a really interesting observation in relation to Matthew's call. He says, when Matthew's called, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, what Bonhoeffer says is that you can uh, pretend by looking at history or psychology or some other theory, you can pretend that Matthew actually knew who Jesus was. And people, you, you hear people say that, you know, Matthew obviously had heard the story, he's obviously been immersed in, immersed in the culture, it's clear he knew who Jesus was. Bonhoeffer says, well, in order to make that uh, statement, you have to come outside the text. The text doesn't say that. The text says, Jesus called and Matthew followed. And there's something profoundly important and profoundly rich about that, that the disciples never really knew who Jesus was. So the idea that somehow you have to intellectually know everything about Jesus before you can become a disciple, I think is, is problematic. And Bonhoeffer seems to be saying it's problematic. But following Jesus is something that we do with the whole of ourselves. Uh, and it's to do with growing into Jesus, living into the love of Jesus, and experiencing the love of God in all of its aspects. Some of us may be, may be able to name that, that's true. But others don't, but that's not lesser. Following Jesus is something we do with our hearts. And let me give you a little bit of a sense of what that might look like. And so, um, over the years I've spent quite a lot of time in the Larsh communities. The Larsh communities are communities that were founded by Jean Vanier in the 60s. So Vanier noticed that there was a deep oppression of people with uh, intellectual disabilities and people with mental health problems uh, in the kind of asylums and institutions in France. And so he, rather than developing a, a radical social movement, he decided to engage in a small gesture where he took three men with profound intellectual disabilities into his home in Trolley in France and lived with them. Not as carer they cared for, but as friends together in the spirit of the Beatitudes and the friendships of Jesus. And out of that, there's a, a whole range of communities across the world that live in that same way together as friends of Jesus. If you go to large communities, the, uh, the narrative communities. So you ask a question and people will tell you a story. So this is a story that somebody gave to me, which, which is an, an interesting story for you to think about. Uh, it was a story about a, a young man who had Down syndrome 
who, uh, his name was Jean-Pierre, and he uh, had a heart condition, and he'd gone down to the Paris uh, the day before to see the cardiologist, and he came back, and the, uh, his friend in the last community said, where were you yesterday, Jean-Pierre? And he said, I was in Paris. And he said, oh, what were you doing? He said, I was seeing the doctor. Oh, what, what, what did the doctor do, she said. He looked into my heart. And he said, into your heart? And said, well, and what did he see? And she said, uh, he saw Jesus. He said, he saw Jesus in your heart. And what was he doing? He said, he was resting. Now, those of us in places like this would describe that as the pneumatological indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like, <laughs> but for Jean-Pierre, Jesus was in his heart, and that's the way he articulated it. And there's a huge beauty in that, uh, that the simplicity of that. Walter Brueggemann um, uh, makes an interesting observation about the uh, I think it's Jeremiah 26, when Jeremiah is talking about King Josiah. And he says King Josiah was a good king because he looked after the poor, looked after the widows, looked after the orphans. But then he says, is that not what it means to know me? Now Brueggemann picks up on that and points out that actually knowing God is not simply knowing things about God. Knowing God is a social practice something that we engage with in our relationships. And James is very hot in that. He says, the devil knows more about God than you do. Well, look after the widows. Look after the orphans. And that, that sense, and Jean-Pierre brings that to the, the, the fore, really. That sense that um, following Jesus is falling in love with Jesus. And following in love with Jesus is not to do with rationality and intellect. It's to do with who we're with and how we're with together within the body of Christ, as we teach one another what it means to love, as we, as we receive from the Spirit the gifts of love. Now one uh, kind of final observation that you may well have to think about, when we talk about disability ministries, very often people will use, well two things, people use language like offering hospitality to the stranger, as if, like, we are not strangers. We're all strangers. Like. It's not like you're, this person here with a disability is a stranger and I'm not. So you have some hospitality. We're all strangers. Um, but the second thing is, we oftentimes talk about people with disabilities uh, uh, and all the different dimensions of what that means as marginalized people. And that very often disability ministry is framed as marginal to the, the church. Uh, and that just raises for me an interesting question. Did Jesus really sit with the marginalized? And the answer to that question is no, he didn't. And the reason that that answer, uh, that, that, he, that he didn't, is this. Uh, Jesus, who is God, sat with those who, whom society had marginalized, pushed out of their communities to a place of a very disturbing place. Jesus sits with the, 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 the so-called marginalized and shifts the margins. So over here, the church is doing its uh, funky thing, or the religious people are doing the thing, worshipping God, thinking that God's over there. Actually, God is over here, doing his thing in here. And I think you know, the gospel is very clear to, you, to, to me that the gospel is saying that, actually, hey, over here is where God is doing his stuff. 
And there's a real danger for us uh, as a church to do the same thing. If we think about disability ministry as ministry to marginalized people, or if we have it as a marginalized dimension of our mission, the danger is that actually those of us over here who think that we're worshiping God normally actually miss the blessing. And more than that, miss the actual presence of God. So discipleship draws our attention to the danger for a congregation not to take seriously the uh, issue of disability. Because not to take it seriously is not to be faithful. And not to be faithful is to risk missing the blessing. So discipleship. The second thing I want us to think about in relation to uh, time is the issue of vocation. This fine fellow here, Martin Luther, uh, I'm sure you'll be familiar, one of the reformers. Um, Luther has a very interesting idea of vocation, which was quite countercultural at his time. So people at that, 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 that Luther's time tend to think about vocation as, as ordination, as, as being called into ministry. Luther says no. Luther says God and uh, uh, his providence is shifting and changing and reforming the world. We're living within God's time, and in God's time, things look different. And he says vocation is simply where God puts you to do the things that God wants you to do. So vocation is not simply ordination, but vocation is everything. So if you're a, a student, if you're a lecturer, if you're a tailor, these are vocations that are given to you by God. But they're not uh, uh, career plans. What they are is ways in which we faithfully participate in the providential movement of God to instill neighborly love within God's creation, or God's fallen creation. So your vocation, my vocation, anybody's vocation should be understood in terms of participation. So God, in God's time, is reforming, rethinking the world. And our vocation, as part of that, is that task or those tasks which are given to us to, uh, to enable us to faithfully participate in that which God is doing. So, we strive to fulfill our vocation in God's time. So vocation is all about Jesus in that sense. It's never about us. It feels that way. It's all about Jesus. And finding that space in God's time, within God's creation, within God's redeemed time, within which we can discover how we can participate faithfully in the things of God. So Mother Teresa puts it this way. Wherever God has put you, that is your vocation. It's not what we do, but how much love we put into it. Now yesterday I, I talked about, about vocation and, and the way that disability doesn't impact upon God's calling to a particular vocation. We looked at Moses, we looked at um, uh, Paul, we looked at, at Jesus. But vocation becomes really odd when we draw it into the slowness of God's time and when we draw it into the experience of different bodies. Sometimes our vocation is to do nothing at all. So another story from last that I think you'll find interesting. I spoke to, I was, I was in the community in France trying to uh, do some research 
on how to access the spirituality of people with profound and complex intellectual disabilities. People who don't have words and symbols in the way that uh, religion oftentimes asks us to have. And there's two things that, that struck me as very, very interesting. The first thing was that uh, the first night I got there, uh, I was sitting around the table uh, having a meal. And everybody was speaking French, which is not surprising since I was in France. Like. <laughs> uh, but I don't have any French. And I was sitting there thinking, I've got so much I'd like to say to these guys, but I just don't have the language to do that. And my frustration really uh, was, was quite significant. But I suddenly struck me, this must be exactly what it's like for people who don't have language. But those around just can't quite catch on to what it is that you're saying. But you've got so much to say, so much to offer, and yet your community that's in the vicinity just can't hear that. That, that was a very profound lesson for me. But the second thing that, that, that struck me as profoundly important was the, um, an incident that happened uh, at another mealtime when I was uh, we were all kind of sitting around a table in a unit that's called the Forestier within which people with profound intellectual disabilities live. And the meal had finished and everybody was, was uh, kind of clearing things up. And I was just sitting there. It's a bit like home. And uh, eventually it was left with me sitting at one side of the table and then uh, Jean Vanier and another woman sitting at the other side of the table. And uh, the woman that was there, she was a little bit agitated, so her hand was like moving like this. And uh, Jean Vanier looked at her. And he looked at her for a long time. Like, we, we, very, we actually very rarely look at one another. And we certainly don't look at one another for a long time. And he did. It must have been about 30 or 40 seconds. And eventually this woman turned her head and caught his eye. And so she, the two of them were kind of locked in this really... It was, it, there was something very special going on. I don't know what it would have been. Because she had no words. And he was unable to use the words that he had. But they had a connection. And she continued to move her hand like this. And Jean reached out and put his hand on top of hers. And they moved together in this kind of really wordless rhythm. And this lasted for maybe 20, 30 seconds. But they were completely engaged in wordlessness. But they were completely together. In the slowness of that moment, the rhythm of that bodily, these bodily gestures... They were together. And then eventually she turned away, and that was the end of that moment. Um, but that signified for me something about what it means to live in God's time. To be together in ways that include, but are not determined by the things that we think and see and know. To find that space within God's time for silence, for peace. But the slide there represents... Um, a fascinating story that a German guy told me. He was, he was uh, an atheist who worked within the large communities. And every Sunday he had to take somebody, uh, a young man, or actually he was in his 40s. I think that's very young. <laughs> and the older I get, the younger I think it is. And you just have to take him to, to chapel every week. And so they would... Um, he'd taken this guy to, to chapel and he, he said he really hated it. 
But they do it because that's, that's what it was there for. Backwards and power, backwards forward for two years. And then, unexpectedly, this gentleman died. The gentleman with intellectual disability died. And the German guy said, you know, it was a strange thing, but I missed the sacrament. And the way he, he, thought, he, he looked at it is that all this time I thought that I was doing this for him, but actually all this time it was for me. And so the sacrament does its own travel, he says. In other words, the vocation of this gentleman in his wheelchair was simply to be this gentleman in his wheelchair. And through being this gentleman in his wheelchair, God fulfills his vocation and opens up space for wonderful things to happen. So the task of discipleship and vocation is not world transformation, but signaling the kingdom through small, timeful gestures. A true vocation, world transformation is God's job. Our job is to do what we're told and to live within God's time. And by living faithfully within God's time, to engage in those gestures of love that bring about transformation of our understanding of what discipleship is and what vocation is. Everybody has a vocation. Everybody's a disciple. One of the things I noticed for um, candidates for ministry coming through Aberdeen University, uh, which is the best university in the world, I think. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And the theologians are so handsome. Unbelievable. I know you find that, that difficult to believe. But I think I, no, I do notice, though, is that uh, they're really reluctant to get excited about care of the elderly or disability ministries. Um, they want to get young, church, uh, young people into church. They want to have exciting missions. They want to have exciting evangelical enterprises. But you say, well, you know, when it comes to elderly people or it comes to this, to this kind of thing, we can, we can get pastoral carers to do that. Um, and I've thought about that a lot over the years. And I think this is what the problem is. People think that issues like aging, dementia, disability are uh, pastoral care issues. In fact, they're issues of discipleship. The question we should be asking, we need to shift the category. The question we should be asking is, how can this individual here with profound brain damage, for example, or this individual here who has just discovered that they're, they're paraplegic, how can we enable this person to find their vocation? How can we enable this disciple to find their vocation and in finding their vocation participate faithfully within the uh, ongoing redemptive work of God? If we shift the category from pastoral care to discipleship, then it's a much more complicated question, but I think we actually end up in a much safer and more faithful space. So one more thing I want to talk to you about before I move on. Discipleship slow time in the practice of spiritual noticing. One of the things, the things that happens when you slow down and take time for those things that the world considers to be trivial is that you start to see the day-to-dayness of our practices quite, quite differently. And when we see that which we do on a day-to-day basis differently, we get some fascinating things that happen. I'm, uh, I'm currently working on a project uh, which is looking at the way in which Christians um, experience severe mental health challenges, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and um, major depression. 
putting to one side the issues around diagnosis and trying to get to what the experience is. What does it feel like to, to go through this? And how does that impact upon your spiritual life? And it's really fascinating, actually. You know, once, you, once you put to one side your assumptions of what a diagnosis should be like, or something with a diagnosis should be like, then you get into some really important wars. But one of the things in terms of day-to-day -day practices is the issue of medication. So medication is something that, I mean, I'm sure you guys as, as youth ministers, you're more and more faced with the issue of medication as, as you engage in various forms of practice. Uh, and so one of the things I've noticed that when I... I've taken time to, to listen as carefully as I can to people's stories. Around the issue of medication, it becomes quite fascinating. Let me, give you, let me uh, share with you one gentleman who uh, opened up some interesting space. James had uh, double depression. Now, double depression is a relatively new diagnosis within which... Um, uh, a person who has double depression, when they are, if you like, well, they function at the level that many people would consider to be cl clinical depression. So there's always a flatness in there. It's like a double depression. And he's had that. He's in his 40s now, and he's had that since he was uh, you know, 10 or 11. So that's been the whole of his life. And we had some fascinating conversations around his uh, spiritual life and the way that he engages with God in the midst of this. But then we began to talk about uh, medication. And this is what happened. GS, which is me, and what about when you are in the, well, before I talk about that, he talks about his depression as having like three levels or three dimensions. So when he's in level one, uh, he functions quite well spiritually. So he's able to read scripture, he's able to use the Psalms of Lament to articulate his sadness in particular. Uh, and there's no kind of cognitive issues that go on them. When he gets into level two, it becomes more problematic because he becomes more and more depressed, more and more flat in terms of his affect. And so it becomes more difficult for him to symbolize. And so therefore, certain ways of reading scripture and certain ways of engaging with theology become difficult. But he can usually hold on to uh, his spirituality uh, in that, uh, when he's in level two. Level three is when it becomes problematic because level three, he can't do anything. So level three, he's simply surrounded by darkness. He feels like he sits at the bottom of a pit. He looks up. Sometimes you can see light, sometimes he can't. The walls of the pit are slippery. He can't get out of here. All he can do is sit. And one of the interesting things is he says, uh, I don't want somebody just to jump down and sit beside me. I want to get out of the pit. So sometimes in terms of pastoral care, we say, well, let's just sit with somebody. Uh, and he said, I don't want that. He says, I want to go. And so I asked him, uh, what about when you are in the lower third? Is there anything that you can do there when you are really at the bottom? And he says, yes, drugs, but that means medication. Yeah, literally, when I'm there, I'm in a real scary, a scary. When I'm in da my darkness places, darkest places, there's no God. There's no help, or at least there has not been when I've been there. And my greatest fear when I'm in those places is that I might die without knowing God more. And so right at the heart of the experience of depression is that fear of losing God. And you can see the same dynamic in the Psalms of Lament. For the, you know, the, the Psalms is terrified of losing God. So medication then in some sense is a spiritual role. is getting you out of that place. James says, absolutely. Only because, uh, how do I put this? I needed a good metaphor. For it's like as a Christian, I'm supposed to climb a ladder 
and I can look down this long wall and there's thousands of other Christians climbing the ladders. That's a spiritual effort journey direction. And I can't climb the ladder. And then someone comes along with a lift and carries me to the top of the wall. I'm now on the top of the wall. It's a spiritual wall. It's real. I just didn't get there the way everybody else did. So for James, medication is a spiritual task, both him giving it and receiving it. Now, when I've shared James's story with clever academic people, many of whom I'm sure are here today in your own way, but, you know, it's old Princeton is like that, the, the, uh, they kind of seem to think that James is cheating, that somehow to take medication, I understand that to take medication is like to get to attain your spirituality is like inappropriate or is, is cheating, uh, which I think is, is interesting and indicates a kind of uh, implicit dualism. But think about it in this way. Uh, if you work in end-of-life care, uh, one of the things that uh, is profoundly important is pain control. And why is that? Well, obviously because nobody wants to be, pain, to be in pain. But, also, but what does pain do? Pain prevents you from relating to yourself because when you have a pain, all you can think about is that pain. And so everything else, the pain becomes the size of your body. It prevents you from uh, having relationships with other people. And it prevents you ultimately from having uh, relationships with God. So it overpowers you. The pain becomes the size of the universe or the size of your body, as Elaine Scarry puts it. Giving somebody pain control in that context, it's a spiritual gift, a spiritual practice, because it reconnects people with themselves, with others, and with God. And the day-to-dayness of something simple like giving, giving pain medication is actually deeply spiritual when you sit back and take time to look at it. And likewise, within a mental health context, what does James want? He wants to be back and say, Jesus. That's, that's what he wants. He wants to be back and say, Jesus. Give him his medication in this sense, and he's able to do that. It's not cheating, it's simply recognizing that psychic pain is equally as significant as physical pain, and that by giving medication, and by perceiving yourself as engaging in a spiritual practice, you begin to uh, see this task, the day-to-day tasks that you do, as a, even as a professional, are tasks of the heart. The things that we do in the power of the Spirit. When we slow down and look at our day-to-day practices, we discover hidden spiritualities and things that we simply wouldn't notice. And within the area of mental health in particular, slowing down and taking time to look and listen and rethink is profoundly important, and you'll be really surprised what you discover. So given and receiving meditation is a spiritual practice, one more thing. When we enter into God's time, when we enter that slow time, it opens up space for hospitality. And I want to leave you with this idea of hospitality, because hospitality takes time, and hospitality enables us to see things differently. This is a picture of the current Pope when he was a uh, cardinal. And I can't remember his cardinal, or I, can't, I can't pronounce his cardinal's name, so we'll call him Francis. Uh, but it's a painting, uh, uh, and you'll see at the back of the painting that the author has painted himself into the picture. So the author, the, author, the artist, is in the back. And he has a glass of water there, and that glass of water symbolizes the washing of feet. So it's, the, the paint is full of, of symbolism. Uh, but what you want to think about there is the position that Francis is in. 
If he was standing above that young man, a young man who was very weak, very vulnerable and dying of AIDS, he would see the top of his head. He'd be able to look down at that, that, that boy from a, a powerful position and enable his power to control that situation. Because he kneels down, frustrates himself before the boy, he sees things completely differently. He has to look up at the boy. He has to recognize the boy's face. He has to be able to hear the breathing of the boy. He'll be able to see the blemishes in the skin that's caused by this horrible illness. And he'll be able to learn from the boy what it means to be uh, in that position. So there's something very beautiful about one of the most powerful religious men in the world frustrating himself in that way before, before somebody as weak and vulnerable and put him in a, a position where he just sees things differently. And that to me is an interesting depiction of the hospitality of Jesus. So when you think about the hospitality of Jesus, sometimes Jesus was a guest, sometimes Jesus was a host. And that's movement from guest to host that marks the nature and the texture of divine hospitality. Now when Jesus was a guest in somebody's house, he wasn't always trying to change them into what he thought was normal. He simply wants to be with them, to befriend them, to share, spend time with them. The hope is that they can become friends. But that's, <coughs> that, that, that's something that may emerge from the way they are together. When Jesus is hosting, he doesn't say, hey, everybody come in here. He, opens, he has an openness of the way that he, he didn't have a house, which is always interesting. So he had to, always had to borrow somebody's house to host. Uh, but he invites people in and he listens to them and he begins to understand and learn from their experiences. And I think in relation to disability, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to have an openness to be guests in the house of other people, all of us together. What does it mean to be a guest in the presence of somebody with Down syndrome? What does it mean to be a guest in the presence of somebody with traumatic brain injury? What does it mean to be a guest in the house of somebody with advanced uh, Alzheimer's? Rather than always hosting, what does it mean to be for the church to open itself up as a guest to a wide variety of different people? So when we lock into the divine rhythm of hospitality, then we can see that discipleship, vocation, friendship, all come together in ways that bring about, well, the body of Christ. If we can really, really live that as individuals and as a community, then who could not take seriously the gospel? If we refuse to live hospitably, then who will take seriously the things of the gospel? And one more thing, no, two more things. Uh, uh, there's an ongoing conversation about uh, inclusion, uh, and I don't want to get into it now. My, my, the only comment I want to make about issues of inclusion is it's very important. But the problem is that very often people can be included into a community without actually anybody engaging with them. Right? So legislatively, to include somebody is just to get them into the room. Right? So they don't have to do anything, you have to be in the room. Nobody has to speak to you, nobody has to love you. But in order to uh, really be a part of things, you need to belong. And in order to belong, you need to be missed. Somebody in that community, people need to want you to be there, to long for you to be there. When we're thinking about inclusion, when we're thinking about discipleship, vocation, and so on and so forth, 
what we're really thinking about is creating spaces of belonging where all of us will be missed. If you're not there, I'll go looking for you. If you're not there, I'll be worried about you. So in the end, it's all about love, strangely enough. Love takes time. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. If we take that seriously and embody that, embody that in our discipleship, then, you know, the world will be a different place. If we don't, it won't. So Joseph Pieper, a scholar of Thomas Aquinas, describes love, really the love of God, but it translates to other things, in this way. It's good that you are here, and I'm glad that you exist. So, I need you to say to the person beside you, it's good that you are here, I'm glad that you exist. Now, obviously, excuse me, stop loving one another. So as soon as you say that, you know, two things I, I draw to your attention. One, as soon as you say that, you create community. Three things. Second, that's exactly the way that many people think about, uh, exactly the opposite of the way many people think about disability. Thirdly, nobody said it to me. So you've successfully created a minority group who is not unloved. So thank you very much. Greetings from America. But it's true. Sorry, no offense. <laughs> I love Canadians, but so it was so polite. The, uh, but that, 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 that motivational idea of belonging and thinking as we look at one another, it's good that you exist. I'm glad that you're here. Is a true beginning point for not for disability ministries, but for discipleship, for ministries within which we become friends of Jesus together in the midst of all of the things that go on. Our goal is love, our goal is friendship, and our goal is to be followers of Jesus, who is the accessible God. Jesus who opens his arms to the sinners, to the tax collectors, who opens his arms on the cross to embrace all of us in his salvation. All of us who desire to follow Jesus find accessibility. And the communities that we uh, create need to image that accessible God. And so it's not like it's an option to have a disability ministry, if we still want to use that word. It's the heart of the gospel. So thank you for listening. <laughs>